0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte, the Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos, and Podcasts.
1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We're working towards a true account of the universe in which the world we see around us is an accurate picture of reality, or so most of us believe. At the same time, we think we, along with our experience, are a product of evolution. Yet evolution is driven by survival, not by truth. Should we consider that while our biology enables us to successfully function in the world, our experiences and theories are illusions rather than truths? Or can we fashion a new account of ourselves that would give us a better way to understand both who we are in the process of evolution and our relationship to reality? Distinguished Professor of Philosophy Graham Harmon, Associate Professor of History and Philosophy of Science Masvita Chiramuta and Cognitive Psychologist Donald Hoffman debate the survival paradox. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, leave a review, and head over to our website, IAI.tv, for thousands more podcasts, videos, and articles from world-leading thinkers.
2: Donald, would you like to start? Have we evolved to see the truth about reality?
3: Yes, thank you. I'll start with Michael Watson. He was a great cook, um, but he had an unusual advantage. Everything that he tasted with his tongue he also felt as the three-dimensional object with his hands. So Mint felt like a tall, cold, smooth column of glass. He could use his hands in three dimensions to feel around the, the glass. He could feel the weight of it, the texture, the temperature of it. Angostura bitters felt like a basket of ivy. He could feel the tendrils, the leaves, all the sponginess of it. Every taste had a unique three-dimensional shape. And as a result, he was, in fact, a really good cook. He he was able to use this extra dimension of objects to create sauces that were very nuanced and and, and tasty. Now, we we look at that and we say, well, you know, of course those objects aren't real, but they were certainly useful to him. And about 4% of humans have synesthesia. Michael Watson's was one example of synesthesia. And in each case, there's something useful about their unusual sensory abilities. We don't think that they're seeing reality, but we think that they're seeing or experiencing something that's very, very useful. And we would normally say on evolutionary grounds that in the, the normal case, evolution would shape our senses to show us the truth, because seeing the truth will make you more fit. But it turns out we don't have to wave our hands and guess what evolutionary theory might say on this. Um, evolutionary theory um, is a mathematically precise theory. We have evolutionary game theory, which um, precisely says what we mean by natural selection. And so in simulations with my graduate students and then mathematical theorems with my mathematical colleagues, Shaitan Prakash, we've actually found that um, it's a theorem of evolution by natural selection. Not just a wish, but a theorem that the probability is zero, that um, the sensory systems of any creature, human or otherwise, um, will ever evolve so that the structures of their perceptions the objects and colors and whatever else they perceive the structures of the perceptions um, will never reflect the true structures of objective reality and so we're faced with an interesting dilemma i mean clearly evolution has shaped us with perceptions that are useful um, but apparently they're not if we take evolutionary theory in its current form probability is zero that our perceptions tell us the truth and so as a result i think about evolution giving us a user interface. It hides the truth. It gives us like a virtual reality that lets us play the game of life, but without actually showing us what objective reality is. If you had to see reality, you couldn't actually play the game. If you had to toggle voltages in a computer, you would lose to someone who actually had a user interface that could play the game more easily.
2: Thank you, Donald. Graham, have we evolved to see the truth about reality?
4: I I think there's a lot to be said about the way in which evolution has channeled us away from this truth, although I don't think this is necessarily solely the workings of evolution. So if we imagine as a thought experiment that creationism were true and God simply created all current life forms on the spot, uh, I think there would still be a problem. The, the problem is the assumption that there's something out in the world that we can extract from the world and bring into our mind without any transformation along the way. This comes back to this idea, a very common idea with roots in ancient times of matter. Matter is a neutral substratum that forms are in so that we simply extract them from the forms and bring them into our mind uh, unaltered or not very much altered. I think there's no way to do that. There's no way to uh, uh, translate a form from one place to the other without changing it very much. And of course evolution, and also not just evolution, but the obvious differences between animal species uh, gives us a lot of evidence of that. The fact that certain animals can see ultraviolet or infrared light, um, the fact that, Octopuses can now. We recently it was discovered an octopus can taste with its tentacles. Uh, the, the animal kingdom is leg, has legion examples of this. Um, as for objects, I, I want to say something about objects since I'm associated with object oriented ontology. And if some of you have read Donald's work, you'll know that he sees objects as uh, fictions. I actually agree with what he's saying that uh, there's no reason to think that objects that there's anything in the world that resembles in any way the things we call apples and and pyramids and horses and these sorts of things. But I do think we need some sort of individuation in reality because otherwise you're either starting with this monistic lump or you're starting with a continuum that then somehow gets broken up by human perception or animal perception into individuals. And you hear theories like that in which it's the human mind that breaks this primal continuum up into pieces, but then how is the mind different enough from that continuum to be able to do that in the first place. So I think you have to allow for some prior individuation in reality. It just might not have anything like a resemblance with the things that we experience.
2: When you say individuation, do you mean that there are separate things? They just may not be the way that we perceive them. Is that right?
4: Yes, I think there has, has to be separate things since there's no way otherwise to make the passage from either an inarticulate lump or some kind of continuum with various intensities to get from that to the individual things we perceive. There has to be some prior individuation of, of entities in reality itself. Uh, although I don't, I don't think it has to bear any resemblance to what we experience.
2: Masrita, um, what do you think? Have we evolved to see the truth about reality?
0: I'm going to tentatively answer yes, but it depends what you mean by seeing the truth about reality. So I just want to unpack this notion. Um, I think what's normally meant by this is a bunch of metaphors, like that there's an unvarnished reality, which is the truth, or that we're taking things in as they really are. And the ultimate version of this is a God's eye view. So, for example, Isaac Newton believed that everything is immediately present to God, as if all of space were the sensory organ of God. Um, In the optics, Newton describes God as a being who, to quote, sees the things themselves intimately. And thoroughly perceives them and comprehends them wholly by their immediate presence to himself. So if this is our benchmark for seeing the truth about reality, it's just obvious that we can't reach it. Um, And you don't need to refer to evolution to realize that, just in virtue of human beings being creatures with finite minds and finite sensory organs, um, whose sensory organs are in a tiny bit of space, they're not in all of space, like Um, the sensory organ of Newton's God. Um, So it can't be possible that we immediately perceive the whole world. world. Our take on the world will always be from a certain perspective, from our tiny corner of space. It can't be the view from nowhere of Newton's God. But this notion of seeing the truth about reality, we should definitely scrutinize it. Um, What the notion assumes is that to see the truth means to see something independently of a perspective. And secondly, to see the properties the thing has by itself and not how the thing relates to us. But the properties a thing has in relation to humans um, can be just as real as anything. So color gives us a nice example of this point. And this is a view that I spelled out in my book, Outside Color. So if we consider questions like, are colors real? When we perceive an object as colored, for example, a lemon is yellow, are we getting the truth about reality? If we take those questions to mean, are colors properties that objects have independently of human perception, then we have to deny the reality of color because of all this evidence that color categorizations are idiosyncratic to humans, as Graham and Donald just alluded to. So how we should think of of this is that perceiving an object of yellow is due to this interaction between the human visual system and objects. That we refer to as the lemon and the light around it Um, so it's perfectly viable to treat colors as perceiver dependent properties that is to say that they are relational properties like the property of being a sibling so you know being a sibling depends on how you relate to other human beings but the fact of you being a brother or sister to someone is just as real a fact as anything else so likewise we can say that a lemon's being yellow depends on how it relates to human perceivers. So we can grant real status to perceiver-related properties like color, and therefore we could say that we do see reality. We just have to remember that we're not seeing some version of this god's eye view, which I've just argued is an unreachable ideal and the wrong way to think about human knowledge.
2: Thank you. Can we describe this thing we call reality? And when we do, uh, can we actually uncover um, the truth about, about these things? Graham, do you want to start us off on this?
4: Sure, one thing I think we've seen is that all three of us agree that access to reality is mediated. We all think there is some way to gain access to it too. It has to be some kind of indirect access because we've all agreed that it's, it's a form of mediation. And uh, I think sometimes people assume that it's either all or nothing right, that you've got uh, in in Plato's dialogue, the Mino, this uh, idea of Mino's paradox, the idea that you either know something or you you can't know it. And what Socrates opposes to that is philosophia, philosophy, meaning love of wisdom, rather than a direct kind of wisdom, that you somehow have some access to the things, you simply don't have total access. And uh, sometimes in philosophy, we give short shrift to the arts. We think of the arts as something that's somehow cognitively inferior to the sciences. Uh, but if, you, if we start thinking of all cognition as in some way indirect, then the arts provide a very fertile model for how you would do that. Nobody thinks that an artwork can be paraphrased in terms of a, a bundle of literal properties, right? What any, any description you give of an artwork uh, is always going to come up short. Um, every, uh, there was a, Masrita talked about the view from nowhere. An alternative has been given that I also disagree with. Uh, The French phenomenologist, Merleau-Ponty, Maurice Merleau-Ponty says, the house isn't the house viewed from nowhere, the house is the house viewed from everywhere. I think that fails for a different reason. The idea that a house can be built out of views. Um, I would say like Masrita, that uh, uh, there's a kind of interactive component when we're talking about the various views of a house, that the views of a house are all relational but i don't see how you can build a house out of simply piling up an, all possible relations one can have to it and so uh that sometimes people complain that it sounds like negative theology if you say that there simply has to be something outside of our current knowledge or perception about a thing but i think this has been known even in the sciences right if you think of popper redefining philosophy of uh, science in terms of falsification or in uh lakatos his dis- one time disciple uh the idea that that uh in a way, scientific statements are an approximation and they're always balancing on the knife's edge of being falsified or turned into something else. So I think that kind of fallibilism is, is familiar even in the sciences. The
3: evolutionary argument should be understood in the way that scientists usually do all of their arguments. We, we take our best scientific theories and we try to push them to their limits. We see where they break. And when we can break our theories, when we get unusual predictions that we know are problematic, we, it's time to break out the champagne because we're going to learn something new. So I think of scientific theories as incredibly beautiful tools that we have. And as a scientist, it's my duty to study them, to understand them, and then to try to break them. And so that's what I'm doing with the theory of evolution of natural selection. And special relativity, general relativity, quantum theory, all these things, they're all in the same boat. I don't take any of these things as the final truth. I take them as the current best tools that we have, and we're a scientist trying to break them. I I am a realist in the sense that even though I think none of our current theories are strictly speaking true, I think it's a legitimate goal for us to try to get truer theories. I just think that we failed, and I'm not sure we'll ever succeed, but it's, um, it's sort of the goal to get better and better theories that are more and more comprehensive. And what we find as scientists is we, we never just throw away what we had before. We don't throw away Newton when we go to special relativity and quantum theory. Newton, his theory is like beautiful and complete in its own. And then relativity theory is beautiful and complete in it's known. So is quantum theory. But we know that the, these theories themselves are telling us, you know, quantum theory and spe- um, special relativity together, um, gravity, tell us that even space-time itself is not a fundamental concept. And that's truly, that's truly remarkable. And it's ever since Newton, probably before, physics has been about what happens in space and time. And, and now it's very, very clear that there are no local observables in space-time. There, there is no experiment, it's very clear from quantum theory, there is no experiment you can do in a local region of space-time. Um, just from the very structure of quantum theory, we can go into it if, if you want. And so physicists like Nima Arkani-Hamed and others are trying to find a deeper structure, a reality, Beyond space-time, completely beyond space-time and any objects within space-time. Now, this deeper reality is certainly, I'm certainly open to have an individuation of a new kind of deeper object, as, as Graham is, is talking about. I'm absolutely open to that. I'm, I'm open to everything. I mean, it's, 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 we really are at a position where our, our, our wonderful theories are telling us that there's something wrong. And it's something wrong fundamental with space-time itself. Space-time is doomed. Mm. And it's really hard as a scientist to wrap your head around that space-time itself is doomed and therefore all the objects that we perceive within space-time. So I think we can get to reality, but um, not this afternoon.
2: What about lions? Is there, is there something, a, a lion? Because I presume that my ancestors must have been good at running away from them and that's why I'm still here. Um, but are there, uh, w- w- what about that common sense version that there's a lion it's a big it's a big sort of yellowy orange cat used with sharp teeth and you should keep away from it
3: right and and by the way this is not just the common man einstein himself (laughs) uh, talking about quantum theory once asked uh, i think abraham pace do you really believe the moon is only there uh, when you look and it's not there when you don't look and you know because that's one thing that seems to be implied by quantum theory And, and and my i think the metaphor that i think is very helpful on this is that evolution from an evolutionary point of view and, and again i'm not saying evolution is true or deeply true i'm just saying it's the best tool we have so far that's the spirit in which i'm talking about it so when i when i talk about i'm always bracketing my my statements in terms of this is the, the scientific framework i'm working in of course we're going to look for a better framework down the road but then, so that's the but that's all we've got right now from an evolutionary point of view it's it's simply i think the best understanding of evolution to say that we were shaped to have a user interface with symbols that are designed to keep us alive. So we have to take them seriously. If I see a lion, of course, I don't want to play with it. If I see a train, I don't want to step in front of it. So, but we have the psychological proclivity to say, if I have to take something seriously, therefore, I must take it literally. We make that leap. If I, if I have to take it seriously, then I must take it literally, and that's just false. Um, and, and, you know, if you're playing a video game, you do have to take if you're playing Grand Theft Auto in a video game or something, you have to take the st- steering wheel seriously. If you want to win the game, you have to take the cars and their distances that you're seeing them, all the virtual reality that you're seeing there, you've got to take it seriously if you want to win the game, but no one takes it literally. And that's the new move. I mean, evolution is telling us that even space time itself is just your data structure. It's just the user screen It's not an objective reality.
2: Masvita, what do you think of that?
0: Sort of underlying your, this downgrading of you know, the perceived world, even of space and time objects, as you know, just the virtual user interface, is this assumption that you know what is real is what is utterly independent of the human mind. Right. So as as soon as through evolutionary theory or through other means show that a particular way of perceiving the world is human related then that loses its status of real. And that's the assumption I think we can come into question because you know, humans, the human mind, we're part of reality. So why can't perceive human-related properties be counted as just as real?
2: Can I relate it back to my, my lion? Do you think that, that when I say that's a lion, am I right or wrong?
0: Yeah, so there's a lion. The point being that just if we appreciate that this classification of lion maybe may have this human related component. It's about the way that humans happen to interact with the world. It doesn't mean that it's not real because humans are themselves part of ourselves, part of reality.
2: Donald, can you can you can you live with that? The human is, is essential
3: part of this whole story. When we perceive a lion, we are interacting with something that I think is real. It's just that whatever we're interacting with, whatever that reality is, it's utterly unlike anything in space and time. And in particular, it's utterly unlike anything like a lion. So, so it's, it's, the lion is a very human symbol that we've created. And, and, and by the way, I, I mean, I'm saying this based just on the structure of you know, evolution by natural selection. That's what, what that, I'm just saying what that theory entails. What it entails is that whatever the, the structure of objective reality, so suppose, for sake of argument, there is an objective reality, suppose. And suppose it has a structure. It's a technical question. What is the probability that natural selection would shape the sensory systems of any creature such that the structures of their per- perceptions are, are homomorphic, a technical term, but resemble, but the technical term is homomorphic to structures in objective reality. And it's that precise theorem that we that Chaitan proved. The probability is zero. So, and we didn't need to make any assumption about the nature of objective reality. So it's not like we had to know what reality was to prove that we we're not seeing it. The proof is whatever the structure of objective reality is, we're not seeing it. What we are seeing, so, so I'm not denying that there's an objective reality. I'm saying we need to be very, very careful to the, the move we like to make is I look through a microscope at the brain and I see neurons. And I see neurons firing, and I see neurons firing, and then my muscles twitching, and my, my, my you know, body moving, and, and perceptions happening. And I assume, oh, huh. So it must be that it, neurons really exist, and neurons are causing my body to move, and neurons are causing my experiences. That's where you run foul of evolutionary theory. What evolutionary theory is telling us is that no object in space and time has any genuine causal powers it's a useful fiction like like if you're playing a video game it's a useful fiction that i turn the steering wheel and that makes my car move and if you're just playing the game it's perfectly fine to believe that fiction but if you're a software engineer and you need to to change the software of the, of the game itself it's no longer um, you know harmless to believe the fiction you actually have to know that what you see in the in the virtual reality the, the video game is just a a fiction of of causality, and you have to actually go and, you know, look at the software and change the software. So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying here. When we look at neurons, for everyday neuroscience, it's perfectly fine to say neurons exist and they cause our behavior. That's a useful fiction. I use it all the time. Area V4 is, you know, causes color perception and MT causes motion perception. But when we try to understand how consciousness is related to the brain, now the fiction comes back and bites us. Because it's just simply not the case that neurons, in fact, have any causal powers. So that's where this idea really has teeth, and it causes people to step back and go, "No, this, this sounds too crazy." Is,
2: does that mean that there's um, anything special about the way we see the world? Is it is it peculiar to us? Does it does it have something in common with, um, with the way other species see it? Um, it? Are we seeing some semblance of a reality, Ms. Viti? Do you want to do you want to? To, to start us on that and, and the fact that neurons have no causality?
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> I would like to sort of come back on on this idea again because we keep hearing this idea that okay if it's in the f- interface then it's a fiction but if, if you notice from what Donald was saying just then you know the standard for having the truth about reality is having something in your mind some belief structure which is isomorphic to it, has the same structure of this proposed objective reality, and I, and I really do think that is going back to that Newtonian sort of God's eye view of the world, where you know only the super being could possibly have like in their heads some structure which is isomorphic to reality as it, in, as it is in itself. And we are, as humans, just one amongst many other kinds of creatures which go about the world. In their own, if you like, ecological niche, um, and I really like von Uexkull's notion of the umwelt that every living organism has a sensitivity to the things in in the world which most matter to it. Um, and so, you know, and so, you know, just being a finite creature means that your view of the world is filtered um, by your own needs. Um, what you take in of the world is always through this process of like mediation because you can't just have the world enter your head like directly without being filtered by your own needs and interests as a creature. So I think yes that's a biological view whether it comes from evolutionary theory or just considering ecology and you know the fact that all living creatures have to live in a survive within a certain environment which in which some features of the environment are relevant to survival and others
2: are not. Uh, Graham, we've heard a a great deal about um, um, ourselves. I I, I do feel that the empire of things will strike back at this point.
4: Yes. How can I do it without sounding like a crackpot? That's the question. (laughs) Uh, When I talked earlier about how you can't move a form from one place to another, simply extract it from this substratum of matter and move it into the brain, I should have ventured the crazier hypothesis that the same happens in the interaction between things. Obviously, when there's a causal interaction between two things, not all of the reality of one term in the causal relation is is transmitted to the other object. And so I think that the problem with the minds not being able to access reality directly is also reflected in some more primitive form at the level of inanimate causation. And people get upset about the notion of panpsychism, but that's not really what I mean. All I mean is that no relation between any two terms is ever going to be an adequate expression of those two t- of either of the terms. There is simply no direct interaction, even in nature, let alone in animal or human minds. Um, I would like to comment on something Masrita said. She was, I think, what she is trying to do is to say that just because there's an interface doesn't mean we have to talk about fiction. And I see the points, but I think then what we're doing is we're steering uh, our questions away from truth towards something more like reality. It sounds like we're all agreeing that there can't be a direct mapping of the reality into the minds without any interface or without any mediator. And so therefore, what we're looking at is, is a model where cognition has more to do with a running up against reality in some adequate way than it does with creating an accurate model. And the reason I think of this is because there's been a lot of talk about post-truth politics, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure politics was ever about truth. I think it was more about what's happening is more about post-reality politics. You're getting certain political uh, movements that are simply detaching themselves from anything that's actually going on and uh, isolating themselves in a kind of echo chamber. And so the, the goal should not be to create a true map of the world, but to, to have enough uh, points of contact with reality that you're not completely lost or completely adrift.
2: Donald, I mean, um, can we, can we if, if we don't see the, the truth of things, can we at least see some, some part of it that is real?
3: Uh, yes and and i I agree with Maita. Uh, I like von yukko's idea about the interfaces being you know um, specific to each creature and its needs a- absolutely, and um, I don't think that there's any way for us to take a a, a god's eye view here. Um, so when I was talking about isomorphisms, I was saying that if we were to say that evolution had shaped us to see the truth, we would have to be claiming that there was an isomorphism or at least a homomorphism, not necessarily a, a homomorphism, between some structures in objective reality and our perceptions. And what I'm saying is that, that evolutionary theory rules that out. Now, and, uh, it may be. Now, we, we, we have to take an, the next step, right? And that's what's fun in science is that you, you come to the end of your current theories special relativity, general relativity, quantum theory, and evolution by natural selection, the pillars of modern science, they're they're all telling us. And that's a beautiful thing about scientific theories is they do great work for us, and then they tell you when they stop. They say, we go this far and no further. So so quantum theory and general relativity together tell us that space-time is doomed, that 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 very concept is no longer serviceable it's only an approximation. It's like when we learned when we went from Newton to quantum theory. We learned that you can't talk about position and momentum at the same time. Both are not precisely defined. Now we're and, and that was a revolution. You might go, well, who cares? I mean, if I'm kicking a you know soccer ball, I know the position and momentum well enough to kick the soccer ball. Who cares that you can't precisely, you know, define them together? We can define them to ten decimal places. So who cares? Well, as scientists, we do care because our scientific theories are are about what we can talk about precisely. And and so it was a huge move from Newton to quantum theory because we can't talk precisely about position and momentum. And that's what's happening with space-time. Space-time ceases to be something we can talk about, um, not only at at small scales, like at at the Planck scale, it just ceases to be well-defined at the Planck scale. But even in a room the size of the room I'm in, quantum theory makes it very, very clear that there are no precise observables at all in my room. There's nothing that I can measure precisely in my room. And, and that space-time in that sense is fundamentally an emergent and approximate concept. And so, so that's, that's the issue. Now, I, do, I, I really liked what, what Graham was saying in, about how we you know objects aren't just exhausted by their properties and, 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 and so forth. But that we have to have some notion of their own essence and th- their interaction, how th- how they interact. and and i'm I'm very interested myself in going beyond space and time in getting a model of of reality. And of course, I'm going to be wrong. I mean, that's I mean, that's just as a scientist, you just know up front you're wrong, but you try to be precise so you can find out precisely why you're wrong as quickly as possible. So I will say this. All these scientific theories are incredible, they're powerful, they should be studied, and we know that they're not completely right. There's something deeply wrong when space-time itself is gone. So I want to find a deeper theory and it may have objects like what Graham was talking about. What is the nature of those objects? What is their essence? What is the essence of their interaction? Is there a notion of causality that we can... We we just have to try, put it out there, and then see if we can make predictions that we can test.
2: If we give up on describing um, truth of reality what will the, the the future look like I mean how are we going to describe it if we have to say well I don't, this may not be this may not be the truth how do we navigate between the truth and reality
3: I'm myself working right now on a theory of reality knowing full well that I'm I would bet strongly against me but that's what you do in science you you write down a mathematically precise theory and you try to make predictions so I'm if, if space and time aren't fundamental, the question is, what is? What shall we put as the fundamental nature of reality? And so what I'm working on is a theory in which consciousness is the fundamental reality. And not just a hand wave of consciousness, but a mathematically precise model of consciousness. So I've written down and published a, a network. It's a, it's a dynamics on graphs model of, of consciousness. And it's, the, it's this dynamics of conscious agents interacting with each other whose asymptotic behavior is what we see as space and time and and so That's quite
2: a, that's, that's, I mean, Graham, are we happy to have objects relegated somewhat to just the interplay of conscious agents?
4: Uh, No, because as I mentioned, I think there are individuated entities in reality um, that differ, simply differ from how we encounter them. Uh, difference between what I would call real and sensual objects. Uh, before we lose von Uckskul, I wanted to, to cite a wonderful example from that book uh, of his. And, and perhaps this is outdated. Uckskul you know, was writing in the 1920s, I believe. But he gives the example that um, humans can only perceive a flashing light if it's flashing no faster than every 1 18th of a second. If it's flashing faster than that, it looks like a steady light that's not flickering at all whereas fighting fish are apparently able to perceive them if they're flashing anywhere between 30 and 50 times a second. So, you know, Donald's attempting something even more radical than that, which is saying that all time is somehow not fundamental. But even if we accept something like time, there's a huge variation in how time is perceived by different species and perhaps within different humans as well. Um, As far as the status of objects, uh, I've already said that I think we can deduce that there are something like objects And I think there are probably indirect ways to get at the properties of those objects. And I also agree that that what we know of as space and time probably are not fundamental. Um, I'm not sure I'm totally convinced yet of the holographic principle, which, which I know works well for black holes. Donald talks about this a lot, and maybe that's part of your theory of reality that you're working on. But certainly that's a fascinating idea. And on that note, I just wanted to add one other thing. I think one of the consequences of the shift from truth to reality, is that we have to allow for more self-contained independent research projects about reality. Because what we've often had with philosophy, especially in the past century or so, is a kind of timidity with respect to the sciences. Philosophers have become very afraid to speculate about anything that is usually within the realm of the sciences. And Carlo Rovelli and, and Lee Smolin have both spoken against that, that they want philosophers to jump ahead. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we really do. What we, what we do in philosophy is we tend to go out and grab something from science and use it to beat up our opponents my big brother knows more than you do, um, and have acted as a kind of valet of the sciences and and commenting in general epistemological terms about what the sciences do. I would actually like to see philosophers working with their own constraints, which are different from the constraints of the sciences, uh, offer their own models about reality. So that even if there are reasons for astrophysics to talk about the holographic principle, maybe there are reasons for philosophy to go in a different direction and emphasize three-dimensionality, or maybe not. But it might be that the different disciplines proceed at different speeds in their own way. You know, just, just like it's said that species and biology become individuated by isolation. Interdisciplinary, sorry, interdisciplinarity is good in the sense that you wanna know what's going on around in all the other disciplines around you. But I think sometimes also what kind of isolation is good, not worrying too much about the critiques that are coming from other disciplines and sticking to your guns. So I think that's one possible consequence of shifting from truth to reality is that there are many different ways to make contact with reality.
2: Masurita, um, um are we still in contact with reality, and should we still be, regardless of the truth of it?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, what I've been saying so far is, yeah, we can still talk about contact with reality, just not contact with all of reality, like this global like idea of reality. Um, and I think one of the things in play in the background here is this notion that, you know, how science works is by stripping away what is you know human relative from our view of the world so take the example of you know perceiving the world you know with human vision we only um can detect a fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum but we have this scientific picture of the world in which there are many more different wavelengths in the electromagnetic um of a, a, a electromagnetic rays and we have instruments which detect those so there's this notion that the scientific method of experiment and theorizing by itself is creeping towards a picture of unvarnished reality, so reality of things independently of how they relate to human beings. But that's a leap that I think needs to be uh, challenged here because you know if if Donald says okay quantum physics we can question space-time as they appear to us and perceptions But then why should we infer from this new scientific image that that is itself the unvarnished reality, just because it says that there's something wrong, wrong or incomplete rather I should say about our initial point, how the world appears to our senses. um, We shouldn't then infer that, you know, this new picture from the new physics is just going to be like reality, as a totality, as an unvarnished, um, for one thing, scientific enterprise is still a human enterprise, it's still, you know, driven by humans with their own technological goals, with um, all of their own um, like human kind of interactions. So there's, it seems like part of the mythology of science, just to, that it that there is this assumption in the background that by showing that there's something limited about um, common sense or initial unvarnished, uh, initial um, perceptual ways of experiencing the world, that that is the route to this um, more fundamental, absolute notion of reality. Um, so I think there's reality all along. So I don't think um, perception, ordinary perceptions like cut us off from reality, they just, Uh, open up open us out to one portion of reality and I think we can still talk about truth um, as well within our own portion of reality one thing I want to say there is a caveat to what I just said I don't think we should necessarily give up the ideal of wanting to get beyond a limited perspective I think there there is a there is value in the thought that each human should try to transcend the most narrow perspective that they have on the world, and we can do that in incremental ways, but we shouldn't, by employing that ideal, think that that we have actually happened upon one completely human transcendent um, view on the world, or that science would somehow get us to that.
2: Just because we, 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 we've decided possibly that there is no unvarnished reality that we can all just grasp in its totality it doesn't mean there isn't a reality. And maybe if, even if we can't ever reach a God's eye truth, does that mean that, could there still be some things which are true for us, true enough? We can't
3: expect to get at an unvarnished truth, uh, you know, uh, that's independent of humans. So all of the, you know, we don't expect monkeys to understand quantum mechanics it's very likely that homo sapiens can't understand the, the deep nature of objective reality. On the other hand, there's the attitude of give it the old college try, right? See how far you can go and, and expect that like monkeys, we can only go so far. And, and so the, the point is then to be precise, to, to make, so you, you give your theory of the unvarnished reality knowing full well that it's varnished, <laughs> um, that, it's, that it's human uh, limited. But you then find out with mathematical precision what predictions it makes and see how far it goes And, and that's the best we can we can ever do and and i also agreed with with graham that you know the when i we want objects that aren't just like human related i i want whatever this unvarnished reality is that we're trying to you know posit fallibly i really want when i talk about agents i'm not talking about anything like humans i'm talking about agents that, that have an essence of their own and conscious experiences, utterly unlike anything I could even imagine. Um, so so you know, the synesthesia examples are, are sort of interesting, right? You, you get a feeling of people that are experiencing the world, like Michael Watson tastes mint and he's filling a tall, cold, smooth column of glass. That's strange, I mean, that's a very, very different perception. And then, you know, certain creatures that can actually see the polarization of light, birds and, and bees, apparently, and then some creatures in the ocean that can actually um, sense electric fields. They, they see or experience electric fields. I, I don't know what that's like. And there's an infinite range of agents with their own experiences that are utterly non-human, and we okay. want to understand that.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Time. Please remember to like and subscribe, and tune in next week for more big ideas in the world's leading thinkers.